Um, Let me take a moment to pray for us, and then we'll dive into God's Word together. Let's pray. God, thank you that, uh, as we prayed earlier, you're with us, and uh, not only that you're with us, but you're, you're for us. And so as you're for us, you're for shaping our lives uh, to not only be lives that look like the life of your son Jesus, but lives that then, just like this scripture, um, penetrate the darkness in the world. We recognize today that though there's sun all around us, there's much darkness as well. And so uh, would your light so penetrate our hearts this morning to transform those places that remain dark, but also uh, shaping us to be witnesses, to be people of light in the world. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, today we're in the third week. I believe it's the third week of Lent. Is that right? And so this is the third Sunday of Lent, and we're in a series throughout Lent called I Am Enough. You'll see that kind of in your bulletin. We're looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. I don't think we'll look at all seven of them. I don't think there's seven Sundays in Lent, Um, but we're looking at some of those. And today we're on the light of the world. So these claims about that Jesus makes about himself and then kind of the implications of those claims for our lives. And uh, light, as Suzanne lit the candle, I wanted that lit just as sort of a, a point of contact for us, is, is a really wonderful thing. I mean, what isn't wonderful about this right now? But it's also, I think, a really dangerous thing. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Let's look at the wonder of it first. Sunlight, the literal light of the world, is, our, is not only our source of life, it is literally the source of life, light, life for the solar system we live in, but it's also our source of joy. So as our source of life, I have this hilarious book I brought up with me because I, I wanted to see if anybody else has this. What If by Randall Monroe. Anybody else have this? Yes, a couple people. This is one of Bill Gates' top 10 books. So if you, Bill Gates likes it, you got to like it, right? The subtitle, serious, my kids love this, Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. So it's a great, it's a, my daughter took this to school on Thursday because they have a read time in class. That's how good it is. It's questions like, um, here's one, what would happen if everyone on earth stood as close to each other as possible and then jumped, everyone landing on the ground at the same instant? What if? There's a literal answer to that question. Or from what height would you need to drop a steak for it to be cooked when it hit the ground? I don't know if you ever thought about it, but just in case, you're way high. Here's my favorite. How much force power can Yoda output? I mean, if you're a Star, Star Trek, Star Wars junkie like me, then here's the number one most asked question. What would happen if the sun suddenly went out? Number one, Monroe has a website, so you can submit the questions. Number one asked question by his readers, what would happen if the sun suddenly went out? And the book is awesome because he goes through the trouble of explaining all the benefits to this, which to scientists out there, there's not really that many benefits, but here are the hypothetical benefits. The reduced risk of solar flares, improved satellite service, better astronomy, so we could see the stars all the time, cheaper trade because there's no more time zones, and safer children because there's no more sunburn. There's all the benefits. But there's one major negative. We would all freeze to death in an instant. So by the end of today, if the sun just went out, it would be zero degrees all over the earth, including the deserts. Negative 100 degrees by the end of the year, negative, and then the, the earth would stabilize at negative 400 degrees. We'd be dead. 
Just saying, okay? There's not like enough Patagonia puffy down coats in the world to survive, though I wish there was. So, <clears throat> so light is our source of life. It's literally. There's no, way, no two ways of looking at it. There's, it's also our source of joy. And uh, we all know this very well from this moment right now. You're all much happier today than you were last week. Last week, I'm just saying, y'all were a little, those that were here were a little bummed because we lost an hour of sleep, but it's okay. We're all good now. I mean, you come home from work this last week, 4 p.m., 5 p.m., 6 p.m., it's still light out. You can get a, a run in. And I know it's raining and it's not pure joy yet, but we're getting there. <laughs> so it's not dark. Light is joy. But here's one of the things about this metaphor that Jesus uses, the profound thing, I think, that the same source of light, which is also our source of life and our source of joy, can just take that all away in a moment. So it's every bit as dangerous as it is wondrous, light is. So first of all, the danger in, with, with life, without protection, unmediated protection from the sun, go outside after a long winter in the Pacific Northwest, you know what's going to happen, most of you. Not every one of you, but you know what's going to happen. You're going to be burned to a crisp. So it's going to take away your life, so to speak. If you just stay in the sun too long, it's going to burn you to death. Happy Sunday. <laughs> so without light, we die. With light, we die. It's a great day. It can rob us of life. It can also rob us of joy. <clears throat> um, so you all heard about, maybe you haven't, but the great American sleep recession going on right now. Uh, there's these studies I've read that say that over 60% of Americans are not getting their sleep needs met right now. 60% of you, 6 out of 10 of you, are not getting your sleep needs met. And all the studies point to our, it's our, actually our excessive use of technology as the cause of this epidemic. Uh, your cell phone, your laptop, your tablet, your television. In particular, your use in the hours before bedtime. And so the studies I've read, you know, you're emailing late at night, that last minute text before bed, late night TV, you're reading your Kindle in bed, uh, all, all are driving this significant level of sleep deprivation by restraining the production of melatonin, which you need to be able to sleep, and then disrupting your circadian rhythms, and on and on and on it goes. And that's leading to these long-term negative side effects to your health. I don't know how many of you wake up in the middle of the night multiple times. I do all the time, and part of it is because I'm doing Duolingo, because I've got to become fluent, right? So I'm doing Duolingo right before bed. Just saying. So, so light doesn't just cause joy, it robs your joy. It can take away, like you wake up in the morning, you get bags under your eyes, you know? It doesn't just give you life, it takes life away. And by the way, this applies very nicely to the theological implications of this metaphor. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And it's wondrous when you think about that. I mean, who hasn't heard that prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah 9 at Christmas and just felt, just filled the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. We love that, don't we? We love that, especially on Christmas when it's a little darker. The light of Christmas, the light of Christ is wonderful. And yet it's also very dangerous. Uh, do you remember that scene from Moses' life when he goes up to meet with God on Mount Sinai? This is in Exodus 33. He says to God, he's been kind of walking with God. He's been a life, let's say he's a lifetime Christian. He's been walking with God, and he, but he's never seen God. He's never seen God face to face. So he says, hey, God, prove that you're real. I've kind of been hearing voices, seeing signs, but I've never seen you. Prove yourself to me. Show me a sign of your presence. And remember what God says, Exodus 33, 19 and 20. 
I will continue to review myself in signs of mercy and grace, but no person, not even you, Moses, can see me and live. If you see me, you'll burn up, sort of like that Raiders of the Lost Ark moment. Remember that? And so Jesus, what's Jesus saying about light? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Like, which is it, Jesus? Can we get close to you or should we stay far from you? Like, how should we approach you if you're truly light? How do we embrace the reality that God is pure light without burning up? <laughs> you know, like looking at the sun too long and you're, you're, you burn up. How do we relate to God in a way that just both draws near to his warm graciousness but also respects his fiery holiness? Like, how do we do that? It's a paradox of sorts. Well, God is both. How do we encounter both? Jesus says so in John 8, 12. He kind of gives us the keys to this. A sort of, I'm going to use them, this kind of pun. Uh, it's in your bulletin. But you know those read instructions before handling? The pamphlets you get when you buy that Ikea furniture and you just throw away? They're actually important. So I've had a few times where I'm like, oh, shoot, where'd they go? So I believe John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. That verse gives us sort of the instructions for how to follow Jesus or how to approach Jesus as light. Three instructions, actually. So the first instruction, and you'll see these, and I think there's a typo in your bulletin, so let me just set this straight. The first instruction is the declaration of who Jesus is. We need to know who he is, okay? The second instruction we're going to look at is the directions he gives to following him. We need to know what it means to follow him. And the third instruction is this sort of guarantee that we possess. What do we have in our hands? when it comes to the light of Christ, okay? So we're going to look at those three instructions, and then we'll just respond together, okay? So the first is, who is Jesus? Uh, and to understand this declaration, really, we just need to understand the context. Speaking of Bill Gates, he famously said, context is king, right? So the context of this passage sets the stage for everything else. You need to know the context. or Otherwise, this idea of Jesus as the light of the world does not make sense. And so if you notice in this passage, John 8, Verse 12, this is what we read. Again, Jesus spoke to them. And that word again in Greek means again. So it's like you don't need to know Greek to know that there's something that already happened that I should know the context of. You learn the context if you read back in the story, specifically John 7:37. It says in John 7:37 that Jesus is in Jerusalem, the night of the great festival. Okay, a certain feast. It's the great day, the last day of that feast. And what we learn in John 7 is that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is a really important feast. This is one of the, the great Jewish feasts of the year. This one's seven days long, week-long feast. It happened at the harvest time every year, so you can kind of picture fall, right? And it commemorated God's provision for the people while they were in the wilderness. Remember those 40 years in the wilderness in the Exodus? So when they left Egypt, they got out of slavery. They went into the wilderness for 40 years. There were no harvests. There were no crops because there was no land to farm, okay? There were no homes. They were homeless wanderers there for 40 years. And so God's daily provision for them, remember this was manna, daily food, and then water on these separate occasions, like water from a rock, like God would just provide sweet water, right? All these different things. And then he'd be, as a shelter for them, because they had no homes, a pillar of, uh, or a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. So a cloud to shelter them from the sun, you could say, because the burning sun of the uh, desert. And then a, a pillar of fire by night to sort of provide them protection and warmth. So the people once a year would come together in Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles. People, pilgrims all over Israel would travel. They'd come to this place to commemorate the great things that God did for them in the desert. 
So for example, one of the things they did, they, they live in little booths around the temple, little huts, thatched huts. And just to remember what it was like to not have a home and how God provided a shelter for them, okay? Another thing they did is they would, they would do this water uh, pouring rite. They had a rock there and they'd pour water over it, sort of a ritual. And that was just to remember how Moses struck the rock and water came out of the rock. Remember that? And then the third thing they did is every night they lit this enormous candle, or actually there was four of them, candelabras, at the court where Jesus is standing in John 8, as chandeliers. And they lit these, these lamps on them, sort of uh, candles. And those, those lamps were so huge that the light from those candles, they were high up in the, the uh, court there, they flooded in the rest of the city. The rest of the people in the city could see that. This is where Jesus gets his, you are a city on a hill metaphor from. Because he's, he, the idea is that people are coming to this light to remember that God provided protection for them and guidance to them. So the, the rest of the city would see this. this the, the band would strike up a, a song. The people would dance. This is an enormous party for seven days. Every night they would do this. And it was remarkable because it was remembering not just how God gave them shelter and water, but how God gave them uh, light. How, remember how God gave them light? I already said, I kind of alluded to this. Um, but God, he, he appeared to them in Exodus chapter, I think, if, I don't remember the chapter. I should know this. Anybody know the chapter? Bible trivia. Where does the pillar of fire come from? I think it's late. Okay, we won't go there. I'm in the weeds now. So <laughs> this, this cloud appears before them. In daytime, it looks like a cloud, shelter them from the sun. Nighttime, from the, uh, it gives them sort of this pillar of fire. And, and when the sun goes down, this fire provides protection against the oppressive darkness of the wilderness, okay? So the pillar of cloud, and it's actually Exodus 13. I just remembered it. So this pillar of cloud, uh, this, this little verse it, where it describes this pillar of cloud, it's, it's where we get this idea of the Shekinah glory of God from. If you ever heard that, grew up in the church, Shekinah glory. It's just to describe God's presence, the glory of God, the, the light, the, the pillar of fire, the cloud, okay? It's the light of God's presence among his people. That's what the Shekinah glory is. That he came down this moment and gave him himself as light. And so every night in the Feast of Tabernacles, they lit this candelabra to commemorate that moment, Exodus 13. Lest they forget where they came from, their need for God, God's guidance for them. Are you with me? Okay. Here's the key. Last night of the feast, John 8, or John seven thirty-seven, actually, Jesus shows up in the temple and makes this stunning declaration, okay? And here's what's going on that night. They put the candle hours out. Last night of the feast, they, they snuffed all, if I were to go over there and snuff that candle out, they did that. Snuffed all the candles out. I don't know what just happened there. So they didn't continue to light it because this idea is that the, the festival's over, things are winding down. It's sort of like taking your Christmas decorations down for the year. I mean, how depressing is that, right? To take your, your Christmas tree down. This is like that, but bigger. They're taking down these decorations. They're putting the lights, the light out. And they extinguished it. And in that way, this last night of the feast was worse than any other night of the year for them. It's, I mean, because it's, like I said, it's terrible to take down your Christmas tree in the middle of winter. Like, I, we keep ours up until, how late, Elizabeth, like mid-February? Like, no, she's laughing, no. But we take it down late because it's like, oh, those little twinkly lights are beautiful, right? You want to keep them up. And then there's those neighbors that keep them up year-round, but we won't talk about that. <clears throat> and so this is what's happening in the temple. They're taking down these lights. But it's much worse than that because it, 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 what's happening is this, they're being reminded 
that the Shekinah glory of God, the, pre- the glory of God's presence in their lives, has not been, been seen or experienced in Israel or anywhere else in the world for generations now. So God has seemed absent from their lives, not present. This, the story of God's light to them is just this sort of mem- distant memory, this fairy tale, you might say, that's rehearsed one time a year. I don't know if that sounds like Christmas to you a little bit, right? The prophet Ezekiel actually talks about this. God's glory departed from Israel. This is in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11 because of their sin. Departed from Israel, lifted up, and, and settled on this mountain far from Jerusalem never to return. First uh, Samuel talks about the, the word that's given for this. The word is Ichabod. You remember Ichabod Crane from that, what's that story? The, yeah. His word means, the, his name means glory's gone. And so here's what would happen. The last night of the feast, after days of celebration, the lights go out, bands stop playing, the dancing ends. There's this palatable sorrow and sadness. And the people collectively stand up and cry, Ichabod, glory's gone. And then they go home. However, we're told on this, this particular night, a couple thousand years ago now, Jesus shows up and there wasn't a cry of Ichabod. Something very different happened. You can just picture Jesus. John eight twenty enters into the treasury of the temple where this happens, underneath those candelabras. Moments perhaps before they're extinguished, maybe moments after, I don't know. And he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. You can just picture him standing beneath these lights, these massive lights. For generations, they've been doing this ritual. For generations, they've been talking about God's Shekinah glory, how he protected them in the wilderness, light by night, cloud by day. And then Jesus has the audacity to show up this man, Joseph of Mary's son. <laughs> I'm the light of the world. I'm the cloud by day. I mean, he's, not being, he's being unambiguous here. I am the pillar of fire by night. I am the Shekinah glory of God's presence. I'm the things you're looking and longing for. Uh, the things you celebrate but now despair over, there's no need to cry Ichabod anymore. You, I mean, you can now see why they wanted to kill him right after this. And so that's the context uh, of this story. It's so, so important to understand what Jesus is saying. It's not a cute metaphor. This is a, a major declaration that Jesus makes. And that leads to the directions he gives. So that's the context and the, the sort of the, the setting for this story. And here's the, here's the directions he gives to us. So I'm the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will have the light of life. So the directions he gives us are really simple. Follow me. Now, what does that word follow mean? What does it mean to you? Think about it. For most of us, it means to emulate, to copy, to imitate, to follow Jesus' example. Right? He set a pretty good example. Perfect human being, perfect life. I can follow maybe parts of that, follow his teachings. Now, there's lots of reasons you or I might try and emulate or copy or imitate Jesus. I mean, he's, he's worthy of following. The Bible talks about this. One of them, I'm just going to go over a couple, is this nostalgia motivation. This is especially true for you if you grew up in the church. So you're raised in the church, you're coming to church, you're emulating Jesus, you're you're deferring to Jesus makes you feel right. It makes you feel like this is what you do. This is because when you don't come to church, you feel wrong. Like you skip church. Oh, I don't, I've been to church all year. I feel something feels out of place, right? Uh, something's missing from my life. That's just nostalgia. I'm going to be blunt with you. 
In that sense, it's what you're used to doing. It's how you were raised. We, we use this language around the church, don't we? I was raised a Christian. <laughs> you, can't, you can be raised a Christian, but that's not what it means to be a Christian, okay? Uh, it's not something you just have in your blood. You can't, it's not, it doesn't work that way. So that's one reason people say, I follow Christ. It's just the way you're raised. There's another reason people follow Jesus. It's called the bargain, I would call it the bargaining motivation. Here's how this goes. Some of you are emulating God because you're trying to cut a deal with God. Here's how it goes. I, I, need, I need your protection, God. I need your help. Uh, I'm in trouble right now. I need some answers to some prayers. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the Ten Commandments. Here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm not going to break any of the rules. Okay? I'm going to give to the poor. When those plates go around, I'm going to drop something in. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to church. You know, I'm going to be there when you're there. That's bargaining. I need help, God. You say your help, so I'm going to come here and get your help. That's a bargaining motivation. And by the way, neither of those, some of you really feel like I'm roasting you right now, neither of those is all bad. They just are, okay? Very benign in some ways, though I have a, probably have colored them a little negatively, I think. It's good to cry for God's help. The Bible teaches us that. God is our help. It's good to imitate God. Paul talks about this in his letters, to imitate Christ. That's not bad to do. But they're just simply motivations. Hear this. Jesus is not, when he says, follow me, talking about motivations. He's not trying to motivate us. He's not some cosmic motivator. Uh, follow me. He isn't saying, follow me because it'll make you feel better. He's not saying, follow me because it'll help you. He's not saying, follow me because I'll give you what you want. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. In fact, his invitation to follow him is, is more specific than any of those and also much more difficult. So if you're willing to go here with me, listen up. If you read down the story past verse 20 where we stopped this morning, but if you were just to read the rest of the story, you're going to see this real palatable confusion amongst, amongst Jesus' listeners, specifically the Pharisees. Uh, he makes the light of the world declaration. I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me. And then immediately, verse 21, he says, peace out, which is my paraphrase. He doesn't, maybe Jesus spoke like that, I don't know. But he says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Peace out. See you later. And these people who are listening are totally confused. They're listening to him, and they literally, this is another paraphrase, is he going to commit suicide? Because we think he's crazy. He literally just stood under these candelabras and told us that he is the Shekinah glory of God. Cuckoo! I mean, literally, how can a person be that? This is crazy talk. He must be do, about to do something very crazy, like kill himself. And so Jesus says, by way of clarification, <laughs> verse 22, you're from below, I'm from above, I'm from heaven, you're from earth, I'm immortal, you're mortals. Which, by the way, this is what I could hear them saying, great, thanks for clarifying Jesus. Cuckoo, you're even more crazy now. What does that even mean? You're from, you're from above, I'm from below. Like, I don't get it. But what he's trying to say is that unless you put your trust in him, your faith in him. Remember John 3, Nicodemus, put your faith in Christ. You're never going to see him again. Uh, in other words, there's something impermanent about Jesus. There's something about Jesus' physicality that isn't lasting. Uh, and, and that was and is hard to wrap our minds around. Because <laughs> we think of Jesus as always here all the time. But, but they were not thinking that way. This is just a man and there's something about him that's going to disappear and go away. And, and what that was is if you, if you try and wrap your mind around it, Jesus was only ever in the world for one thing. 
He talks about this. And that was to die on the cross. His stated mission is to go to the cross and die. That's it. And that doesn't make sense to these guys. Not when they try and frame it in the context of Jesus being the light of the world, God's fiery presence. How does the fiery presence of God die on a cross? That doesn't make sense to anyone. I think of God, if I'm a first century Jew, as all-powerful, almighty, inextinguishable. How does that happen? Which leads them to say, verse 25, very, very bluntly, who are you that this can happen? Who are you? So they're so confused. In their confusion, verse 28 of John 8, this is so, so important, okay? This is where, where Jesus really kind of helps us understand what he's talking about when he invites us to follow him. Verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I'm the one I claim to be. In other words, when you see me lifted up, when you lift me up, then you'll know who I am, you'll know where I am, and you'll know how to get there. You'll know who I am, where I am, and how to get there. You'll know what it means to follow me when you've lifted me up. Okay, so following Jesus is all about knowing him as and seeing him lifted up. Great. You're like, not great. I have no idea what you're talking about, Jack. But this is really important. If you flip forward in the Gospel of John, it's all kind of connected. John chapter 12. You're going to see what this lifting up is all about, actually. So you flip forward, do this sometime this week. John 12, 32, Jesus says, When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So he uses the same language as John 8. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. To which John adds in verse 33, he did this to show them what kind of death he was going to die. So when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And I'm saying this to show you what kind of death I'm going to die. And why that's important is because when I hear uh, Jesus saying he's going to be lifted up, I, I think he's referring to his resurrection. His triumph over the powers of Rome and Satan. <laughs> and Jesus is very clear. No, no, no. I'm lifted up when I die. Literally. It's, it's to show you what kind of death I'm going to die. Because he's, he's talking about his crucifixion in John 12. He's talking about his crucifixion in John 8. He's always talking about his crucifixion. It's his stated mission to die on the cross. And he's being deeply ironic. Because see, when you're hoisted up on a cross... In those days, and today, you're hoisted up to be a public spectacle. Uh, publicly humiliated, publicly shamed, disgraced. It's a sign of defeat. In other words, the executioners literally hoisted Jesus up because they wanted to show how impotent he was and how impotent the Jews were just to show how powerless they were against the power of Rome. You have no power over your own lives. They want to teach everybody a lesson. Don't defy Rome. Don't oppose the empire. And Jesus says, when I'm hoisted up, when I'm lifted up on that very cross, you're going to understand what following me is all about. You'll know who I am, where I am, and how to get there. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, my death, though it's a mere spectacle to some, these, the Roman guards, spectacle, Roman empire, spectacle, is attractive to every human heart that will let it attract them. It's attractive. To, it'll, it'll draw you to God's very presence. In other words, Jesus says, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus in the world today, you have to be drawn, not driven. There's a huge difference here. 
to be drawn to God. You can't be driven to God. You can never be driven to Jesus. You always have to be drawn to Jesus. And there's a very important difference between the two. A driven person is one who's seeking to serve God instrumentally, to get things from God, uh, out of a desire to get those things, not God himself. So like those motivations I already mentioned, uh, for going to church, being a part of the church, uh, these are drivers. <laughs> things we do in order to get things. <laughs> to, not to get God, but to get an experience of God. To get things from God. To get answers. To get better. Whatever it is. And, and being a driven person means that 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you feel like you're not enough. You're never enough. That's the consequence of it. You're, it means you're always seeking to fulfill other people's expectations or perhaps your own unrealistic expectations of yourself. Um, no matter the cost on your relationships, on your health or whatever, you're just driven. You're trying to prove yourself. It's ceaseless striving. That's what being driven means. How many of you are, are driven right now and then driven to God? That's not what it means when Jesus says, follow me. He's not trying to drive you to God. He's trying to draw you to God. Whenever I'm lifted up, when you, when you see me lifted up, you'll be drawn to me, he says. Someone drawn to God, someone drawn to the cross of Christ, isn't generally speaking to, 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 to serve God out of trying to get something from God. Just try to get God. There's a big difference. To see God, to hear God, to know God's profound love for them, which is shown to you on the cross in his death. Just for the sheer beauty, though it's an ironic beauty, the sheer beauty of who he is and what, he've done, what he's done. In other words, you, you serve God not to get the things, but to get him, because you want him. You want to know him. You want to be with him. And Jesus says, follow means, it means being drawn. It means being overwhelmed by the beauty of the cross. It, being drawn to that place of redemption and renewal, to, to just look at God for who God is, uh, for what God's done, the one who suffered in order to save. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make complete sense to a lot of people. This is why Paul calls it scandalous and foolish. But as it draws you, what Jesus promises is you're going to know who he is, you're going to know where he is, and you're going to know what it means to follow him in the world. So let me ask you this question as we transition to the last point. How are you coming to God today? Are you a driven person? Are you one who's being drawn? Which is it? Uh, are you letting yourself be drawn by God into God's story just by what God's done, just by who God is, not by what he'll do for you? Think about it. There's a big difference. And if you will allow yourself to be drawn by God into his story because of who he is, then there's a promise and a guarantee in your hand right now. And I want to open that up with you. So here's what Jesus says. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me, here's the guarantee, will have the light of life. You have the light of life in your hands right now, if you could just see it. <laughs> you might just call this, sorry for the pun, a lifetime guarantee. Okay? You'll have the light of life. He, he declares his presence in our lives. His light is shining within us, as we sang earlier. It's shining through us. His drawing power of the cross is alive in your lives right now. It has the power to reveal the life and what life is really all about. To you, to everyone around you, to draw 
all men, all women, all children, everywhere into an experience of God to be the people we're made to be. So, for example, have you ever noticed that when you pull on a pair of socks in the morning sometimes, especially the kinds that it's dark, like this morning when I'm going into my room trying to find my socks, I forgot them. You can't tell if it's blue or black. And so you pull out a pair, you pull out two pairs, you look at it in one light, you still can't tell. You have to bring them under a little more intense light. Anybody ever have this experience? And then you realize they're mismatched? Yeah. So, Anyway, a good light will show you real color. That's the point there. And with Christ in your life, if you're following Christ, if the story of God's death and resurrection is in your life, the light of the world, <laughs> if you're coming to the cross of Christ and, and allowing the beauty of what he's done to, to, to just emanate from your life, it has the power to illuminate everything around you, to show everybody around you life's true colors, so to speak, to differentiate between the, the darkness of the world and the lightness that is God in Christ. What's good and what's noble, what's beautiful, what's true, what's pure, to reveal the contrast between those things. And it's true, isn't it? Everybody wants to know what life is really all about. Everybody, I don't care if you're a Christian, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, atheist, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants to know the meaning of life. This is why Monty Python's Holy Grail was such a big movie for our culture. I'm, I'm not kidding. We want to know and taste and experience life's true colors, the so-called meaning of life. This is why you go to the self-help spirituality section of Barnes & Noble, Amazon. These are all the best sellers. You know, just books about meaning and purpose and good living. Sales of all sorts, if you're watching March Madness right now, are being pitched to you every day, promising you life, promising you in a bottle of Coke, life, promising you in your car insurance, life, promising you in the clothing you buy, life, and your diet fads and your exercise routines. Like, people are desperate for meaning right now. They always have been, ever since the time when time began. And Jesus promises, inasmuch as we're drawn into his story, which is his death on the cross, that we will become beams of light. You hear me? And then we'll, we're going to shed that light onto the meaning of life. Shed light on the true, show the true colors in our world. Jesus. So on a practical level, let me just tie this together for us. Because I want to give you a couple of practical handles of where this can happen for you. Jesus is saying that we have immense power and influence as light, his light, to walk into the dark and shadowy places in our city, in our world, and, 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 and expose darkness for what it truly is. As a follower of Christ, you have the power to expose darkness for what it truly is. So not, maybe not cast it out completely, but expose it to bring the light of Christ's life to those places. So whether that's institutional racism or poverty or addiction or sex trafficking up and down Lake City Way and Aurora, you have the opportunity when you enter into those places to reveal the true colors of the life of Christ. Uh, to, to, to say that the promises of healing and reconciliation and profound human worth and free grace are promises available today. Not someday, but today. And you, you get to reveal those promises or articulate them when you just show up and say, hey, they're in my life. They are happening through us. This is why we are committing ourselves to reconcil the reconciliation initiative our church is on. We had Romanita Harrison a couple weeks ago. 
This is why we serve community meals as Bethany Northeast in downtown Lake City. This is why we, we partner with local schools, because we believe that we are the light of the world and we have light to shed on that world that is dark in some places. Do you believe that about yourself and our church? That we're not just practicing religion here, but we have something to offer the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. We also have the power to be the life of our neighborhoods, which is not the same as being the life of the party. Okay? You don't need to show up everywhere your neighbors gather and just be that person. Hoo-hoo, I'm so amazing, you know, and be that. What it means is that wherever your neighbors gather, think of your neighborhood, the bar, the park, the local school, as you work together to bring greater flourishing to your neighborhood. Wherever you live, we're invited in to declare through our generosity and our joy and our, our sacrifices time by just helping people out that the abundant life of Christ has shown up in the neighborhood. Christ wants to show up in your neighborhood. That's why he's put you there. I, I say this and I'll say it again. Where you live matters. And Christ wants to show up where you live. And he promises to do that as light in your neighborhood. And to say that the life of Christ is available to all. It doesn't matter if, they, if those all aren't attending a church on a Sunday. Remember those motivations? It's not about that. It's about knowing Christ as light, allowing to, to penetrate your life. So whether that's when people stand on the street corner waiting for their kids to show up on the bus, some of you do that every day. You're the light of the world there. Uh, or or if, if that's the way you engage the clerk at your grocery store and the people behind you in line see that, and it's very different. Uh, the way you treat your neighbor whose dog keeps doing that thing on your lawn. The, the life of God, the light of God is free and available to all. And he wants to invite people into his story, to draw them in. Here's the final thing, and there's a lot more than just these three, but these are the three I thought of. You're invited in to be the life of your workplace, your office. Many of you work. And you're here today maybe asking, how does my faith and my work connect? And here's how they connect. Life that shows up, light in the workplace is this. Not how can I get the most out of this job, out of this firm, out of this venture I'm on. Not how can I use this as a stepping stone to move up in my career so I can retire early and live? Not how can I enhance myself, make myself look good? Uh, instead, how can I come in, how can I make this the best possible place to work in the world for everybody, not just for me? How can I bring the best out of this organization and these people who work for me, if you're a manager? How, how can I bring the life out of these people who they, as they were created to be? Like, really help them understand who they are. How can I... <laughs> How can I bring life, give my life away into this workplace as Jesus would have done? Just give it away. Sacrifice every day. In all these ways and more, like the way you deal with pressure, the way you handle criticism, the way you love your family, uh, what you're doing is simply and yet powerfully just living into the promise that you are the light of the world, Christ's declaration. You're bringing light into that world and you're transforming the world from the inside. So there's a lot more I could say. I've already said a lot. So what I want to do is just stop talking now. Invite the worship team up. And we're going to pray. Uh, and then we're going to sing. And I just want to invite you to allow this promise to become a promise for you and the world we live in. So the way I'm going to pray this morning is just lead us through 
a little more extended prayer. I want to pray for some of the dark places in our world, pray for our church, and then finally pray for you, okay? So if you just join me in leading, as I lead you in prayer, lead us in prayer, and then we'll respond by singing. Let's pray. And just pray as you feel led in your heart, in the silence of your heart, uh, in whatever posture, hands up, knees on the ground, standing, sitting, however that works for you. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come into this space. We thank you that you've been in this space this whole time, but come in a new way. Enter into the darkness of our world and, and our lives even. God, fill a sense of emptiness and times in our lives with your presence. Um, light who lightens all, just shine in our lives, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, into this church, Bethany Northeast, and we just confess without you we have no power source. We have no light. We have no message, nothing to share. Without you, you, you are the reason we gather. So fill us with your presence, with your light. Draw us into your story more deeply, God. Help us to see, even as we finish this season of Lent, what you've done on the cross for us. Help us to, to see that it's a beautiful thing, God. And then alert us to the signs of your presence all around us, God, light who lightens the world, would you, would you shine on us? And God, we pray for those in our lives. We think of them specifically who uh, are living in darkness, who are clouded with trouble, who have no hope right now. Would you name them in your heart? For these friends and many strangers, God, would you be light? Would you shine light on their lives? And come, Lord Jesus, and light up our world. Uh, disperse the dark clouds of war right now. Violence, corruption, greed, uh, indifference, fear. Light of the world, would you, uh, would you illuminate the world and reveal to the nations, all nations, that you are the light who lightens all. Your power, your glory, your grace, your mercy. Would you light up our lives and our world? And God, we finally pray for our homes and our workplace, is that they would reflect and reveal your glory. That as we sit around table today with our children and neighbors, that we would have an experience of your presence, your light with us. That as we stand around in the parks with our neighbors who are maybe flooding those parks for the first time in months because of the sunshine, God, could we rejoice in your presence, being fully aware of your light. God, would you give us a renewed sense of passion for our calling to be the light of the world? 
light who lightens all, would you light up our lives? We thank you, Jesus, that you promised to do this. You promised to be in us and with us and to live through us. So it's in your name that we pray, and it's your name that we worship now as we respond. Amen.